This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hi and welcome to Radiotherapy. And man, do we have a huge show lined up for you today. Ever wondered what the difference is between a barrister and a surgeon? Well, one of them spends their day drawing blood, the other one is a doctor, kind of. Uh, we could spend the whole morning with uh, doctor and barrister jokes, but I don't want to offend our first guest. And our first guest is Bob Milstein. He's a prominent and highly respected lawyer. He has written extensively on health law and liability issues, was a founding member of the editorial board of uh, the Australian Health Law Bulletin, and appears in the electronic and print media as a commentator on emerging health law trends and medico-legal issues. And I stole that from your website, Bob. Today on the show, Bob will help us navigate our way through the health privacy laws, which are so complex. So we've got the legal side of health privacy covered. What about the health side? Well, when it comes to health, who better to explain things than our youngest team member, Dr. Moto, a freshly minted psychiatrist who still believes he can change the world and... It's not something we would want to talk him out of. He'll be chatting with us about the ethical hmm, ethical and clinical side of health privacy uh, from uh, his perspective as a uh, busy practitioner. And our favourite epidemiologist, I just love that word, epidemiologist. It's like a skin care clinician, epidemiologist. Nurse EpiPen will be joining us too. Now, if there ever was an incredible success story in the history of epidemiology, uh, then the HPV vaccine would have to be one of them. Um, EpiPen will weave the history of Gardasil, taking us from the idea to the cancer-preventing immunisation. And this truly incredible story is all Australian and we'll be catching up on the latest medical gossip, I mean uh, news, all in the next hour of Radiotherapy. Good morning, EpiPen. Good morning. Good morning, am I on? Testing, one, two. <laughs> right. Somebody said about an epidemiologist, is that something to do with the testicle? Oh, because epi- 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 <laughs> Epididymous. Because it's connected to the skin, vestibules. I've had skin and yeah. now a testicle, so which hey. one do you, Which one do you prefer? Well, testicles are quite cute. <laughs> Good morning, Dr Moto. Good, Good morning. How are you, Mel? I'm very well, thank you. And uh, welcome, Bob. Thank you, and uh, thank you for that introduction, which I have to say was very insulting. Um, <laughs> I to insult you too much. I, I did think you were going to tell the other joke about lawyers. You know what the lawyers have in common with pelicans? Well, they can both stick their bills up their ass. <laughs> well, this is, a this is fantastic. <laughs> fantastic. People having breakfast. Turn down your radio. Uh, that is quite funny, though. Um, where were we now? Epi. Yep. You were going to tell me something from the medical literature and. I've got a brain like a goldfish. I've completely forgotten. So, catch up? Yeah. Catch up. So, what was the 13th of September, Mal? World Sepsis Day. Got it. Okay. So, um, I just think this is an incredibly good uh, opportunity to talk about sepsis. Mm -hmm. And we might just start with infection first because infection leads to sepsis. So, infection, I looked up a really nice definition of infection. So, it's Mm -hmm. the invasion of the body's tissues by disease-causing agents, Mm -hmm. their multiplication and the reaction of host tissue to these organisms and the toxins they produce. So, you've got a bit of an immune response and there's combat happening in the body for an infection. 
Well, that's an interesting point, isn't it? Because it's not just bacteria or viruses coming into your body, it's your body's reaction to it. Correct. Yeah. Got, it. Got it. So if we leave infections to uh, keep going for a bit longer than they should so that the body can fight infections, so we've got viruses and, small, and some bacterial infections we can fight, mm-hmm. but if they're left too long and we develop a sepsis, mm-hmm. so, so sepsis is a severe infection mm-hmm. and it's when the body goes into this overwhelming drive to clear the bugs and to clear the reactions and it's it can be um, a life-threatening response that's to an you, infection. That's when you get like terrible fevers, the shakes, sweats, blood pressure goes up and down or down. Yep. Pulse Respiratory rate, you look awful, yeah. you're feeling ghastly, but you're really feeling ghastly. Yeah, yeah. And you, you can go to the GP and you can say, I'm feeling really ghastly, you might get some antibiotics, you go home, but you're still not feeling great mm-hmm. and you haven't improved. So this is an opportunity to tell people out there to just, if you don't get better within a short period of time and you're getting worse, back to your real, GP. Back to your GP. Yeah. So I did read an article about a woman who got a severe meningococcal disease in 15 hours, wow. was on yeah. a respirator, had a, having amputations. But, so I just, but that would be the unusual case. When absolutely. When you're talking sepsis, just, you're talking like um, you get an inf- what, a, like a urinary tract infection and then it spreads type of thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's an infection, but sepsis is when you're really starting to drop your blood pressure yeah. and get really sick. So sepsis is now being recognised like a heart attack major trauma and stroke as a medical emergency. And every hour you miss out on getting vital antibiotics in ED, you um, increase your mortality by Mm. 8%. Every hour? Yep. It's the major cause of death and is higher than heart attacks and claims that more lives die globally from sepsis than prostate and breast cancer combined. What? Really? Yep. What in, but are we talking in... Um, We're talking... Yeah, but this would be in developing countries? Because well, you'd imagine that most people who develop a sepsis would run and get treatment pretty quickly. Well, well they, yeah. they do, but they might get better, you know, or they've delayed it or they haven't quite recognised the symptoms. Hmm. But there's figures from the health website that 30,000 Australians become septic each year and many don't recognise the symptoms or know how serious it is. Sometimes doctors miss the serious clues. So there's an asepsis and awareness thing, and that's on the day of the 13th, because people there were 6,400 deaths from sepsis. Right. So how do people find out more about sepsis? So you, through your GP, yeah. um, there's a sepsis awareness um, link on a global... It's a worldwide link. There's um, So how do, we, how do people find that? So Type in sepsis, sepsis into Google? Type in sepsis kills. There's an Australian website. There's a global website with lots of links, lots of advice. Good stuff. Thank you, EpiPen. Over to Dr Moto. I'm also going to talk a little bit about life and death, just Mm -hmm. uh, as a lightweighted way, lighthearted way to start the Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. So we know that um, uh, medical errors, communication (coughs) errors, is a um, big cause (coughs) of uh, mortality in um, patients, Mm -hmm. um, populations. Um, Miscommunication leads to adverse outcomes. Um, But even (coughs) before things get to that, 
patients often reflect that um, they're sick and tired of having to repeat their history and um, repeat what allergies there are and you know talk about uh, you know what surgeries they've had when they see different doctors and you know their GPs might be very familiar with their history but then they go to hospital and then the hospital has no idea about what happened last week last year etc etc now um, about four years ago um, there was a government government initiative to um, electronic uh, put put uh, um, patient records um, on a electronic in a electronic format huge success <laughs> it's been an abysmal failure yes. and uh, initially it was uh, called the PCEHR the patient controlled electronic health records any acronym with more than three letters is doomed to failure <laughs> so no, they've They've, uh, they've, that, that didn't quite work. Um, they um, had a um, take two and the mm. new system is called the My Health Records. Mm -hmm. um, that's been in rollout in um, certain pockets of um, Western Sydney just as a pilot mm. program. Uh, towards uh, the end of last year. And um, the news um, this week past is uh, in the Daily Tele Telegraph, there was a, an article published about um, how our GPs, a lot of GPs in that pilot study are not actually um, playing ball. They're not actually uploading or agreeing to upload their patient records um, into this health record system. Um, the main reasons cited are that it doesn't it, it, it doesn't interface, it's not compatible with the GP practicing software. Uh, most GPs in this country use a software called um, a Medical Director. I thought I thought they had fixed that up because that was one of the chief complaints about the, the very first uh, electronic health record. Apparently haven't. And it's gotten to the point where the government is incentivizing GPs to do this so that right. we can roll out an integrated electronic medical record system um, to the point where the government is offering GPs up to about $23,000 to do this and they are still saying no. You're joking. You're joking. So what, you get offered money to, up to uh, become part of a electronic health record so why wouldn't they do it? I mean, is, 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 is it, is it going to cost them more than 23,000 hours worth of effort and labour to, to integrate the thing? I think it really is about um, trying to get people's buy-in into getting on with this program. I think this is clearly a case where um, the mm. actual clinicians and the people um, entering the data, the GPs basically, yeah. they're, prob they're, they're not really on the same wavelength or the same page as the people implementing the program. They were designing they're, the program, they're speaking yeah. two different languages. That's a unique problem with electronic health records. The, um, you know, th those electronic records are the third rail of, of, of medicine. You mean, it is just, history is replete with disastrous failures of electronic health records. Everybody with good intentions trying to do, a, you know, trying to get something up because you're right, it's all about communication. And yet there's a couple of links that just fail. In defence of the people who've tried but failed so far, um, they did seek to bring in clinicians early on in this process. Uh, the organisation that was responsible for creating the PCEHR, which was personally controlled, patient controlled, at one point it was going to be called patient-owned electronic health record, they brought from around Australia a number of appropriately skilled clinicians to try to guide mm -hmm. the formulation of these new widgets. Mm -hmm in recognition that inevitably when the rubber hits the road, GPs are going to say, too hard, too difficult, mm. what's in it for me? Pay me. Uh, and it's quite amazing because on the one hand you say, well, 
medical records are like my money and if I can go to an ATM and take out my money, why can't, why can't it be as simple for my medical records? Mm. But as my slight involvement with that organisation showed, it's extraordinarily complex just mm. to get the language, just to have a common universal language which everyone can use on a consistent basis. Mm. Because that's not the way medicine has rolled out. It is exceedingly complex. I totally agree with Bob. Um, there have been a lot published on this um, topic in various forms of academic journals over the last um, 10 years or so. Um, there have been multiple trial implementations across all the um, developing countries, developed countries, I should say. Um, and they do involve the stakeholders, all the stakeholders, nice and early. Um, I think the the um, end point is clear and the benefits are clear in that it might um, uh, reduce communication errors, um, it would make um, available uh, information much more readily, readily to the GP so you stop having these situations where you know the patients follow up with the GP and the GP says oh I haven't received your blood results yet, mm. I haven't received <clears throat> a discharge summary from hospital yet and it's in intensely frustrating for the GP as well as for the patient mm. so I think the intentions are all there and they're clear but um, the overall gist I get is that um, there are lots of people in the sandbox, they're just not playing very nicely mm. with each other. Mm. I remember when I was in Israel and uh, they've got um, GP clinics and specialist clinics kind of amalgamated and you can be anywhere and if, you know, if you're in one town and you go see a doctor, then you might go you know, 300 k's for, to some other town, you see a doctor, they've still got your record. So you know, there are places where this kind of thing works. I think when you try and bring it in from top down, like most things, it's not going to be disruptive. It's 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 going to the people that you want buying from aren't going to buy into it. I think it's got to come from the bottom up. I think it's got to go organically. You know, lots of people have tried and failed. I I sort of beg to disagree. I think the failures are because um, we are um, taking too much. Uh, um, I suppose, uh, have, having too much consideration of all the various stakeholders. I think we should just take a slightly more draconian approach. Totalitarian? And decide, totalitarian you approach. You guys are going to do this? This is the road rules. Everyone has to drive on the left-hand side. You know, tough, man. Free this is guy. the software. This is the platform. We just have to try and get along with, you know, try and get along and try to make this work. Otherwise, this will never take off. Yeah, no, I can't see that happening, man. <laughs> You've got to follow my way or it's the highway type of thing. Ooh, you're tough. There's got to be a time when it's just going to be downright embarrassing that this type of society doesn't embrace that type of technology. I think the time is nigh that, uh, yeah, you just think, you know, look, look, I can speak into my phone and it can send a text message around the world. Come on, getting a medical record. Can't, I, I, I'm with Bob. I mean... Or what you say about people saying, if I can go to a bank and withdraw money anywhere in the world from my account within 15 seconds, surely there must be a way I can do it with medical records. I appreciate it. It's incredibly complex. I've got no idea how to do it. But there are smart people out there, surely. Surely. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Dr. Shane just walked in and cracked a joke about medical records, but I had the headphones on, so I didn't quite get it, Shane. Maybe next time. <laughs> Write it to me. Now, Bob, it's, uh, you know, you're probably the first uh, lawyer we've had on the show since um, Lex Judicata. He's always swanning around the world going to operas and things. We can never kind of get him through his minions. So thanks for coming on the show. Pleasure. Tell us, what are the key issues with health privacy nowadays? Because it just keeps changing. I, you know, I can't get my head around it. Well... 
part of the confusion, I think, is because of the um, unstated overlap between health privacy or health information privacy, I guess is the more technical term, and confidentiality, because mm -hmm. everyone knows confidentiality mm -hmm. and it's been around for ages. Since Hippocrates. Since Hippocrates and yeah. that Hippocratic oath that you apparently sign on your first day of being a doctor. I must have lost my copy yeah, of it, but yeah. yeah. We all have. Yeah. So confidentiality we understand and we know and we get and we assume it to operate and it's in fact a cornerstone mm -hmm. of the doctor-patient relationship. Mm -hmm. Privacy though is really something quite different. Privacy laws haven't been around in Australia for that long, really. Um, and the driver for the introduction of privacy law in Australia well, there, there, were, there were several, but my understanding is that the most practical driver was that the European Union had something called a Directive on Trans-Border Data Flow, which essentially said this, if you want to do business with our member countries, you have to demonstrate to our satisfaction that your privacy protections are just as robust as ours. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, the Australian government was under pressure to, to deliver. And that's when privacy law got a head of steam. So this is because of the EU's directive about privacy and uh, keeping data safe. Was that was 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 that in respect to health privacy or just business privacy? Or it was primarily business privacy. Right. There has been a uh, a split in the way laws in Australia have dealt with privacy generally and health privacy in particular, and that's because, not surprisingly. Um, the lawmakers recognise that there's privacy and then there's privacy. Some things, are, some things are deserving and demanding more attention, more protection than other things. Mm -hmm. The fact that EpiPen might be a member of the Collingwood Football Club, as embarrassing as that is, mm -hmm. that's not particularly sensitive information. It's just unfortunate. <laughs> but one's HIV status, mm -hmm. for example, one's history of uh, sexual relations, mm -hmm. of sexually transmitted mm -hmm. disease is another. Mm -hmm. So the laws recognise that that's sensitive information mm -hmm. and that requires extra special protection. Mm -hmm. And that extra special protection has come about through specific legislation. And so I it was around about the year 2000, wasn't it, when the health privacy issue became prominent, is that right? Yes, in 2001, That's right, uh, yeah. there was a change to a piece of federal legislation called the Privacy Act. So the Privacy Act had been around since 1988, but it only, it only really governed the public sector in the ACT, the Commonwealth. Really? In 2001, there was a big change. And from a health perspective, the biggest change that from 2001, that Commonwealth Privacy Act says that these, these new privacy laws called the National Privacy Principles govern every health practitioner in Australia, right. public or private. Give us, give us the sort of the, the, the talking points about the NPP. Like what are the major changes? And I, okay. I could, if I can just um, preempt you. <laughs> um, one of the things that, that, that kind of got me, and tell me if I'm right or wrong, is that the patient now owns the notes not the doctor owns the notes. Am I right or wrong about that? That's wrong. Okay, good. Because <laughs> I like to be proven wrong. I th really, I thought the patient owns the information in your notes. No, the issue, uh, there's oh, a distinction between the concepts of ownership and access. So they have access to the notes, obviously. Well, yes, but they only had that right of access because of specific laws that were introduced relatively recently in the, in the olden days, when I was a young practitioner, for example, um, 
they did not have an automatic right of access and there was a very famous court case which sought to determine whether the patient does or does not have an automatic legal right to see the medical records made about them. Really? And uh, it's quite an interesting case if we can talk yeah, about sure, it. Yeah, sure, yeah. A lady who had a breast implant, a faulty breast implant, wanted to sue the implant manufacturer. Her solicitors wanted to get the relevant paperwork together. So step one is let's write to the surgeon and say, please give us a copy of our client's records. And the surgeon said, thanks very much. Uh, As a matter of fact, they're not your client's records, they're my records, and I will only um, share them with you if you sign this document. And that document said, in return for giving me access to the records, I promised to take no legal action against the surgeon. (laughs) And the lawyer says, well, as a matter of fact, you're wrong. They are our client's records. And uh, the surgeon said, and the surgeon's lawyer said, no, they're not. So they went to court and it worked its way up the entire court hierarchy until it got to the highest court in the land, the High Court of Australia, a case called Breen and Williams. And to the surprise of many commentators, the court said, We've looked really closely at it and we actually don't think there's any legal basis for which a patient can assert a right to get access to the records a doctor makes about them. And if the community believes that that's wrong, it's they better go and get their lawmakers, the legislation, parliament to change it. And that's in fact what happened. The ACT changed their laws in 1987, I think, mm-hmm. then Privacy law throughout the country in various ways also says patients have a legal right of access. The issue of ownership is something separate, though. How do you mean? Like the physicality of the The physical paper is not owned by the patient, with the exception maybe of x-rays, if we still have x-rays, things like that. The hard copy is theirs, but the clinical paperwork or the soft version in the electronic age they don't have any property right to that. Okay. They have an access right to that. Right, yeah. And there are even exceptions on that. Right, yeah. Okay, so patients thankfully have a right to access information about themselves. What else has sort of changed in the... Implement? Well, the, 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 the mm. most important thing to say about the national privacy principles is that they don't exist any longer because they're... <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> it, yeah. is, it is confusing and complicated sometimes. Because in 2014, the, law, the privacy laws were upgraded once again. Good, yeah. And uh, so that they're no longer called the national privacy principles, they're called the Australian privacy principles. Ah, good. Yeah. And I should say, because I know it hasn't been confusing enough just yet, that that is the law that exists at the federal level, a piece of Commonwealth legislation. Right. But the Victorian government also felt that Victorians needed their own protections So there's a separate piece of dedicated health privacy legislation in Victoria, and that is called the Health Records Act. And they don't have national privacy principles. They don't have Australian privacy principles. They have health privacy principles. Okay. (laughs) But the bottom line is patients can still get access to that. Bottom line is patients have lots of rights. Good, good. And practitioners have lots of obligations with respect to the life cycle of information. Right. The way you create, collect, share, use, dispose. And tell me, are there other countries which have similar health privacy requirements and uh, access uh, for for patients? I'm sure there are. I don't have a detailed knowledge of what goes on in other countries, but I'm I'm absolutely certain. Not only do they have the same, but probably more stringent. Really? Hack? Leo, um, Moto. Interestingly, just hearing what uh, uh, Bob had to say... (laughs) 
Nice. Um, um, in, in the sort of the um, health uh, privacy principles in the Health Records Act in 2000, of uh, 2001 that you alluded to, um, interestingly, in the um, Health Privacy Act, mm. um, organisations like hospitals, mm. right, have a duty to disclose if they believe disclosure to relevant authorities is needed to um, um, allow the authorities to investigate suspected criminal matter or criminal behaviours. Right. So that's, that's the exact wording. And when these kinds of incidences come up in clinical practice, yes, I know it's a bit wordy because that's the sort of the, just explain the that legal... No, just explain that again, Moto. So serve, health services have an obligation to disclose to authorities when a criminal act has occurred or is likely to occur? Both. Both. So um, under mm. uh, Section 2.2H1... <laughs> If the, organization, the, if the organization believes that disclosure to the relevant authority is needed to allow the authority to investigate suspected unlawful activity, um, and in 2.2H2, um, if uh, disclosure is needed for law enforcement to perform their function. Mm. And I was just going to very quickly say, um, in, in the clinical setting, these requirements always put clinicians in a very difficult stance mm. you know mm. so in a so so taking the sort of the 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 um legal or the sort of um medical framework out of it you know for example if i have a patient um who um, um may have a risk of offending mm. or um has a vendetta against somebody mm. um but um, I'm not clear on that. It's mm. just suspected, mm. okay, using the, mm. the, the legal um, wording framework. Um, do I rat on him to the mm. police? Mm. Mm. Um, it, it's, it's a very, very tricky um, call to make. It's, it, it can be very troubling because of the concern that it will have a chilling effect on the willingness of patients to consult mm. a trusted health practitioner who may turn out not to be a trusted health practitioner. That's correct. It's fundamental to the relationship to mm. have trust. Mm. And confidentiality is sacrosanct with two exceptions. Mm -hmm. uh, one is the consent of the patient. Two is by operation of law. Dr. Moto's mentioned the famous HPP two point, whatever it is. <laughs> um, I can't remember <coughs> the details of that, but. Remember, that is a piece of state legislation. The Commonwealth legislation has importantly different wording. Mm. Uh, that, uh, that does have a whole lot of carve-outs when you can breach confidentiality, but it's not quite the same as the one we just heard. Uh, the unlawful activity exception only applies when there's unlawful activity within the practice. In other words, someone's uh, faking prescriptions, for example, or taking drugs or stealing drugs. The more relevant one, and perhaps this one would cover Dr Moto's uh, concern, is the issue of overriding public interest. Mm. When there is a serious threat to an individual's harm or health mm. or safety, mm. or there's a serious threat to the public safety. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So I, <clears throat> I've got my own little scenario. So I worked in a liver clinic at one of uh, the Melbourne hospitals and knew that some of our patients came in with high blood alcohol levels. 
and I would try and detain them as long as I could before they went back home driving home. <coughs> but we were often felt very compromised whether we should be notifying security mm. or the Good police question. because we knew they were getting back in their cars and driving home and they were um, inebriated. Does, does EpiPen go to jail now for, um, for breaching the law? I don't believe so. I, I, don't, I don't think that the medical profession is an instrument of the state uh, and they shouldn't be... You are not allied to the police. Your primary obligation is to your patient. And a lot of sick people come from a lot of troubled backgrounds and those backgrounds include being on the wrong side of the law, injecting mm. drug use, mm. for example. And it would be a terribly bad thing if those patient populations did not have faith in the ability of their treaters to preserve confidentiality. It's a really, really fascinating case because, you know, what if the same um, patient or group of patients repeatedly attend the liver clinic and has um, on um, uh, various successions um, been inebriated? or, you know, um, under the influence of alcohol and they have declared that they're going to drive home. What happens then? You know, um, what's our duty of care to the community, to um, pedestrians and other road users, right? So you raise it two separate issues. One is under privacy law, do you have a right to blab? Mm. Uh, the other completely different legal issue is forget about a right, do you have a duty? Mm. And if you do, does that mean that if you fail to exercise the duty properly, does that mean someone who gets harmed by that wrongdoing of your patient can sue you? What's the answer? Well, as my 20-year-old son tends to say, I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's called dad. <laughs> the, answer is, the answer is you might, but, and there have been some really interesting cases that look at the duty of care to third persons where yeah. you, where either you mismanaged your patients so that they come to harm someone else mm. or where your patients just are. Yeah. But what about what about with barmen or bar, bar ladies? I thought with responsible serving of alcohol, if you say somebody's inebriated, you've got to not serve them anymore. I guess you don't take away their car keys or inform the police. Yeah, but the analogy is not fair because there's no threshold barrier of confidentiality. confidentiality right. Right. Interesting case. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Okay. So let's let's just go through these MPPs or the APPs now. Oh, and here's another question for you, Bob, just totally um, separate. Which Does federal law gazump state law? That's a great question. Uh, it's, in fact, one of the questions that's bubbling under the surface of the same-sex plebiscite issue. Oh, yeah. States versus federal. And... Uh, it's a really difficult one. There's a basic constitutional proposition that if there is an inconsistency between a federal law and a state law, then federal trumps state to the extent that the inconsistency is a direct and therefore irreconcilable one. Right. Yeah, I gotcha. Um, we therefore have some potential difficulties in health privacy where the Health Records Act Victoria says go this way and the Health Privacy Act, not the Health Privacy, the Privacy Act, Commonwealth says no, go the other way. So this Happily, is, they're not that far apart though. This is how you blokes make all your money, isn't it? Because there's these two or three words and you could spend like five days writing a brief on it. Yeah, words are important. Yeah. <laughs> tell, tell us about words. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, that's another part of my life. <laughs> so... 
you're going to – so if, if we were just to sort of summarise the really relevant things about health privacy information for um, consumers, for patients, what are the words you'd have to say to them if we just to boil it down? It's absolutely critical that doctors and practices make sure that their patients are on the same page when it comes to understanding what we are doing with information about you, why we are doing it, who we are sharing it with, and the rights you have to impose controls on what we do and don't do. Right. And where can people get more information about this, consumers I'm talking about? Well, there's a couple of privacy regulators who have some really nice and readable resources. Um, So far as the Victorian legislation is concerned, go to the uh, website of the Health Services Commission. Right. Health Services Commission, yep. Yes. Who's about to come out, be undone. There's going to be a new Health Complaints Commission in Victoria next year. Right. But at the moment, it's still the Health Health Services Commission. Um, So far as the big federal legislation, you want to go to the website of the Office of the Australian Information Commission, OAIC. Still with more than three letters for an acronym. It's just not going to be successful. It's one of the guiding rules of medicine. Your acronym's going to be three letters long. It's called the TLA, three-letter acronym. (laughs) So what happens to the NH and MRC? It's too long. That's should be NHM. (laughs) Or MRC. (laughs) Bob, thanks so much for coming in. Um, Always great to to have uh, an expert's perspective on stuff that uh, we've just been gas-bagging on kind of off the top of our heads for the last couple of years. So thank you so much. Stick around, yeah? Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Dr. Moto, you're going to tell us about terrorism and health privacy. It's an interesting clash of two things. This is a bit of a follow-up discussion from a show we did a couple of months <clears throat> ago on the um, back of a series of um, very unfortunate um, um, sort of lone wolf attack events mm. around the world. There was, um, you know, the, the gunman in um, Munich. There was the truck incident in Nice. Mm. There was um, guns in Orlando. And then there was um, an axe in Germany, um, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And uh, off the sort of back of that, uh, towards the end of July, um, the Prime Minister, the um, Attorney General um, uh, mentioned uh, that the government may want to... Um, access uh, the medical records, particularly the mental health records of uh, people who might be suspected of um, being radicalised or are radicalising in order to uh, um, serve uh, the the nation's um, national security interests. Mm. And it was just a bit of a um, consideration and a discussion about um, what that is likely going to... um, um, play, play out and, and some of the pros and cons if um, this was allowed to happen. Now, can I just back you up for a second? Uh, my understanding was that if any sort of kind of authority with enough power, I don't know who that is, um, police or whatever, wants to get access to your records, they go to a judge and say, we're going into Dr. Moto's records because we believe that he is planning an attack or we think that he... We, here is all our... Um, uh, our evidence that we think he's a he's a risk to the community, and they can just go and get your records. So, done. So, I mean, the existing sort of legal provisions allow that to happen anyway. Yeah. Um, I think they're talking about <clears throat> at a government level. Um, they're talking about uh, doing this a little bit more um, frequently. Um, so, lowering the threshold. Lowering the threshold of accessing um, people's medical records. Really. 
And how does that work? I mean, what do you mean? So if rather than just having a bit of a suspicion, we've got, yeah, skerrick of a suspicion. Is that, I mean, um, talk us through the details of that. I suppose the yardstick will be decided by um, whoever wants to access the records and, and the government and if they want to pass legislation um, in this regard. Um, but I, I suppose um, my main concern is um, whether this is, uh, actually going to stigmatise people with mental illnesses mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because it sort of propagates the message that um, people with um, um, it is only people with mental mm-hmm. illnesses who will conduct mm-hmm. long wolf mm-hmm. attacks or mm-hmm. terrorist mm-hmm. attacks when in fact that's mm-hmm. far from mm-hmm. um, the truth um, you know to, to actually perform um, some of these attacks that um, we have seen um, in, in, in recent uh, months and years um, people need a very high degree of um, organization mm-hmm. or backing mm-hmm. financial political backing to be able to carry out these acts if anything you know I think it's probably the um, wrong track to be going down and um, the inadvertent effect may be um, highly stigmatising. You know, we were talking about this around the dinner table the other night and I was trying to convince my 12-year-old of this argument, but I think he defeated me. The idea, the idea was this, is does an insane act, and some of the acts you mentioned are insane acts, they're, they're incomprehensibly um, insane, does that mean that the perpetrator is insane? Because we then tend to label anything which we don't understand, which is abhorrent or terrible, as insane, and therefore the person must be, in inverted commas, crazy. And therefore we would only go after, as you're saying, with this perverse logic, people with a mental illness. And it is a perverse logic, isn't it? So are you saying that the, the danger of this type of breach of privacy is that uh, people with mental illness will be unfairly stigmatised? That's the fear, yes. Yeah. 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 What are your thoughts, Bob? If, 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 can I just get the law right? Because we've got it wrong so often. Um, can authorities just say, okay, I want access to, to Joe Blow's records because we think that he is at risk of doing harm? No, not really. Really? It's, it's, uh, <laughs> I thought they could. In, 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 in the setting of a legal process, you can issue what's called a subpoena, yeah. a summons to produce a set of papers, including yeah. medical papers, and yes, if, if that happens, then the practitioner or their rooms is obliged to comply with it, which means to physically deliver it to a court, right. not to the investigating police. The court then decides what to do with it. And at that point, the practitioner has an opportunity to ventilate their concerns with the court ah, to say why this ought not be. Ah, but I've got uh, this, this issue of access to potential terrorist with a mental health issue mm. seems to be a very much a phenomenon of its times. Mm. There was a similar concern 20, 30 years ago. You might remember there was someone called Mr. Cruel. Mr. Cruel used to abduct little children mm. and Carmen Chan was one of those little children, mm. went missing. The police were at wit's end. They Mm. could not make any inroads into the investigation, but what they did feel they could do was that they were able to form a bit of a psychopathological profile about this bloke, Mm -hmm. if he was a bloke. Mm -hmm. Therefore, they took what was then and continues to be the unprecedented step of co-signing a letter that the Victoria Police, Chief of Police, together with the heads of all the medical defence organisations, the guys who insure doctors, Mm. saying um, 
the police are in trying to investigate this wrongdoer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we believe they <clears throat> have the following personality profile and we therefore believe they're the sort of person who would have sought treatment from a health practitioner. We would ask you to consider your ethical willingness to contact the police to share with them information you have about any mm. patients you have mm. who meet that profile, mm. Mm. which was amazing that they did that. It's never been done since and presumably it didn't succeed Yeah. then. What about, I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking about authorities like, say, ASIO or the federal police. If they want to get access to somebody's files, do they issue a subpoena or do they just sort of knock on your door and say, hand it over? Illegally. They have very they have very strong powers yeah. to search and seize. Search and seize, that's what the word uh, I'm looking for. Yeah. But again, there has to be a judge presiding over the process. So they have to go to a judge first to get authority to do that. I think that's right, but this is getting outside Sorry, my okay. wheelhouse. Okay, interesting. Fascinating sort of um, kind of areas because it is so murky. The issue again comes back to... Um, people who um, offend um, in a recidivistic manner. So, what does um, that mean? <laughs> so, reoffending right, yeah. manner. So, so um, you know, I, I don't want to. Um, I, I'm trying to keep this professional and not put a pejorative slant mm-hmm. on it. But you know, um, criminals and um, and bad, bad mm-hmm. people. They do not usually voluntarily consult a mental health professional. Mm-hmm. They might be forced to do it mm-hmm. um, by means of a legal order, mm-hmm. a custodial order, or mm-hmm. even a non-custodial order. Mm-hmm. Um, but they don't generally tend to knock on the offices of a psychiatrist or um, a counsellor and, mm-hmm. and say, you know, I I am um, having these urges that, and I've you know um, you know uh, slaughtered five people in my past, and I don't want to do this mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. Tony Soprano did. Um, real life people, though. <laughs> Real life people. Well, no, actually, we've talked about The Sopranos a lot on this show and he never put his therapist at risk in terms of breach of confidentiality. He always kept it very, very vague with Doctor, whose name I've forgotten. Melfi. Fantastic show. Um, So it's it's just going to be... um, it, it, it's it's um, f- fishing um, from a very large pond with very um, few of the kind of fish that they want to actually be catching. And as you say, you, you as a psychiatrist um, advocate for the protection of the rights of your uh, clientele and the strong potential for them to be stigmatised because of this kind of legislation or thinking. In defence of the authorities, and I don't really want to defend the authorities on this one, but maybe they've drawn a distinction between the ideologically driven, highly orchestrated attacker on the one hand and the lone wolf crazy on the other, the one who really doesn't have a particular plan but does have a knife and does have views. And that would be more the mental health ballpark. In saying that, though, a lot of, uh, you know, at least a couple of um, definitions for mental disorders actually exclude um, people who um, um, might serve certain beliefs or um, act in certain ways because of a particular mm. um, religious or political view that does not arise from um, an abnormality in the individual. Mm. So that in itself then suggests that terrorism acts or radicalized acts by definition are not um, manifestations of a mental disorder. Mm. And we could spend a lot more... In fact, we've brought this back from a previous show. We could spend probably five shows talking about this particular issue and maybe we will, but I'm very aware that we have two young women in the studio this morning who are very keen to to talk about 
an absolutely incredible Australian story um, about Gardasil. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. Now, EpiPen, fill us in about, take us back in history, the story about um, human papillomavirus and, and the whole kind of Gardasil story, because it is a fascinating well, story. Well, it's, it's, it's the story triggered my sense of um, interest because I'm a mother who has had children that have had the HPV vaccine, so it's called Gardasil. We also have Kat in the studio who's had the vaccine. Hi, Kat. Hello. And um, it's the 10th anniversary of the vaccine. Get being, away, it's been yes, over 10 years 10 already. Years. Oh, so so the first fly. dose was given on the 29th of August in 2006. Wow. And it was uh, developed by an immunologist, Professor Ian Fraser, and his virologist friend, uh, colleague, Dr. Joan Zhu. And in Australia? In Australia. In Australia. In Brisbane. I mean, this, I, Brisbane. It's just amazing. Yeah, but it's the first world vaccine for a cancer. This this is up there. Australian. With, this is up there with eradication of smallpox. I reckon. Yeah, epidemiologically, it is. It's, it is a fascinating. This is story. a fascinating story. Yeah. So, you, um, so j- just to backtrack. Yeah. So cervical cancer is an easily treated um, condition. Easily if, treated. If if, 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 if it's it detected early. early. Yeah. Thank you. And um, and so what the Australian recommendations are are that all women 18 or over who have been sexually active should have a pap smear every two years. Right. Or two years after your first sexual contact, right. up until the age of 70. So you detect it early, so you can treat it early rather than... Unfortunately, nice. that it progress. Nice. Comes much harder. So, so and yeah. the, I just need to t- let you know we all share the sim- signs and symptoms. So, yeah. vaginal bleeding mm-hmm. that's out in, uh, unusual, menstrual periods that are uh, changing their frequency or heavier, longer, pain during intercourse, unusual vaginal discharges. Mm-hmm. This is sort of a, a, a sort of a, a group of symptoms that can be a clue to cervical abnormalities. Mm-hmm. So, in Australia, we have the Pap smear, which was introduced in. 1990 and the incidence of cervical cancer in Australia has decreased significantly since this screening program Mm -hmm. and there are about 800, 850 women per year in Australia picked up with cervical cancer. But there are groups of people that aren't aren't comfortable about having the pap smear screening. Mm, so mm. people that have been sexually abused, mm. people that um, have cultural problems mm-hmm. that won't go through mm-hmm. the program, and Indigenous people. Mm-hmm. So they they have a much greater race, rate of um, cervical cancer and. Um, this, you know, so we want to look at why and how we can treat cervical but cancer. But also, having lots of female friends, you know, they often skip their regular pap smear because it's unpleasant. I mean, for a lot of people, it's not. It's not. Yeah, it's yeah, not something they look forward to. They'd rather have a tooth extracted, I think. Than <laughs> well, no, 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 nearly sometimes. Yeah. So there are two vaccines, and one's called Cervavix. And, and Gardasil. And Gardasil's got the four strains. And so that's that's uh, because you've got a few more strains against um, the complication of um, human papillovirus causing cervical cancer. Oh, can you take us through that? I know this might um, jump you around a little bit, but do we know... I mean, I know that human papillomavirus can lead to cancer. Do we know what proportion of cervical cancers are caused by HPV? Attributable. No, I can't. I don't think I've got 
those particular figures. Figure. I thought it was quite significantly high. Like it was seventy percent. Yeah, th- yes. My recollection of medical huh. radio show it was in that kind yes. of ballpark. Yes. Yeah. So um, to date, um, one hundred and eighty-seven million doses of Gardasil have been given to 130 countries. And I think one of the things that you might want to know is also that men are having the vaccine, so boys. So my sons had the vaccine. and um, What age did they get it? 13. Right. The, and the girls, the it's 12 to 13 in nearly all the Australian schools. And one of the beauties of having it in school is because you're there and you're going to get the three doses. So right. you have one dose, you have one dose, your second dose eight weeks and your third one at six months. Hey, why do boys get it if they don't get cervical cancer? That's a very good question uh, because there's a decrease in genital warts um, so they, and they can lead to... Um, cancers in men, head and neck cancers, and also esophageal and throat cancers. Really, I thought that the reason that the principal reason that boys get the vaccine is for herd immunity so that they don't give the HPV to women. And it's a really interesting ethical issue about you're getting a vaccine which is going to confer a very, very, very titchy, titchy benefit to you, but it's for the good of the community. I love that ethical decision. Yeah, uh, and I, yeah. I didn't want to really focus on okay. that because well, there's some great show. off-spins for the men having it as well. Okay, next show. Next show, next show. So, so Kat, why don't we bring you in here sure. and say, what did you know about the Gardasil vaccines when you were given them? So it was interesting, actually, I remembered I was talking to my father this morning and he was asking me, oh, so, you know, when have you had the boosters? Have you had this and that? And I actually don't know. I, I know I've definitely had them and I think I've had them, but you sort of just go to school and they tell you, well, you're having this today and you don't really know what it's for. And they say, oh, cervical cancer. And I'm thinking, I don't actually know what this is for. So I, I definitely have. I don't remember it, but I've definitely had the uh, all my three vaccinations for it. Yeah, great. And any side effects? Not at all for me. I remember I think there was one girl at school with a bit of a rash or something. They sent her home, but that was it. Okay, so there were a group. So, and I think everybody has to appreciate that if you give a drug or a vaccine for the first time, there will be side effects. Not, they're very, very, very small, but in any of these settings, we they're very, very closely monitored. So there were a group of girls at school and they, they're attributing this to the Gardasil vaccine, but it was at the time of the mm. vaccine. Yep. So there were 20% that had these kind of funny episodes where they got panic attacks and collapsed and they're called psychogenic. This is after the Gardasil vaccine. At Cats, where where, where is the 20% from? This is from in the community. These are reported side effects. Oh, reported side effects, right. right. Yes, sorry about that. So, um, but they were saying that, and people got a bit panicky and said, oh no, my daughters aren't going to have it. Something weird will happen to them. But it's it's the age group Mm. and it's recognised in this age group that they also get nervous about injections of any type. So, and then there's another group that were raised and they were people that had demyelinating kind of symptoms. So people that looked like they were going to get MS. So that was raised. Mm-hmm. But it was also in the right age group and this, and it was they've thoroughly investigated that one because they were more scared about that one. And it was at the same time that um, these people might have a background risk of developing so, so is what MS. You're, is what you're saying that if you give a vaccine to a million people... 
um, in that million people, there would be some people who are going to develop a whole range of disorders anyway. It just so happens you gave them the vaccine about the time that they were going to get it. And that's the background risk right. or the background the health. background risk. Yes. Right, yeah. But I suppose just in, in closing that there's been some incredible outcomes of doing this yeah. vaccine program. So um, they've reduced um, the cancer rates uh, incredibly. I can't find exactly the figure, but it's been very successful. So successful that they're even thinking that um, and some women were only having one or two doses and one doses that they might only need one dose. Mm. They're also thinking that they're going to be able to reduce the number of um, pap screening tests that women will have because it's 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 dropped so low, oh. and there's also a new self pap uh, pap HPV test that you can do yourself, so women can get a little kit. But really? they're only special groups, and this right. is all coming out in May 2017 that they can have a little kit where they in, insert the swab themselves and get and for an HPV test. I've so, heard of that before. So yeah. that's new. Was that an yeah. Australian idea? Or? It's an Australian... It's a, there's an Australian product and it's called um, Solo Pep, Pap or something. Right. And, um, yeah, so there's been lots of developments. It's one of an absolute success story. If you could think of one of the... You know, some of the great developments in public health, in epidemiology, same thing, I presume. I mean, I would put Gardasil up there or the HPV vaccine. I would put... Um, uh, smallpox, eradication of smallpox up there. Probably the polio, polio. vaccine, yeah, probably, yeah. yeah. Um, what else do you reckon? What else do you reckon would be some of the major health benefits that we've discovered or implemented over the last sort of decade, um, uh, century? I suppose part of the screening ones, so your breast cancers. Breast, yeah. yeah, so... Those, um, what about ambulances and CPR and stuff like that? We don't tend to think of that, but no. uh, I know that MICA, I'm pretty sure MICA, that is the mobile intensive care ambulance, was an Australian idea and that's been exported to the rest mm. of the world because the sooner you get to somebody having a heart attack, mm. the quicker you offer them treatment, the, the, the less the mortality. That's links in my sepsis bit it too. It does, you get doesn't it? treatment within four hours. Yeah. I'm also thinking um, Barry Marshall and his team in oh. Western Australia oh, and the helicobacter. Another Pylori. Nobel Prize. Yes. Yeah, and but and the fact that he inoculated himself with um, the bacterium. So that um, is the most right at the beginning story. because people thought that he was just spreading heresy and he was completely mad and he actually um, inoculated himself with the bacterium so he can actually develop gastritis and gastric ulcers. I remember EpiPen and I in another lifetime were doing gastroenterology together and he, his idea just came out and the, uh, it was hard getting my head around that a bacteria could cause an ulcer. It just didn't make sense. So, and I just lead, I need to leave everybody with one final message. Yes. Even though you've had your vaccines. Oh, back to vaccines, yes. Yeah, because I haven't finished. Okay. Um, even though you've had your um, Gardasil vaccines, you still need to be part of the screening program. So the pap smear, smear test, because mm. there are other um, strains that might be attributable to the cancers or the abnormal cells. So you can't be 100% safe. You still need to be part. But May 2017, watch this space. May 2017, you've got that in your diary. Thank you so much, Nurse EpiPen, for coming in and talking with us about 
Immunisations Gardasil. Thank you too to Dr Moto. He's just a phantomologist guy and he's brimming with enthusiasm. Thank you, Bob Milstein, for telling us about the law, privacy, confidentiality and how little we actually know. Thank you to Kat for coming in and telling us about her experience with uh, Gardasil vaccine. We're going to leave you with these scientists from Einstein and GoGo. They have a super highly produced show which actually puts us to shame. But we're going to see you next Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. We'll catch you then. Cheers. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.